albeit a bit unexpected and a bit surprising, uh, I, it is a joy for me to be here with you all this morning, to be with my church family. Um, it is uh, a gift to be preaching God's word. Uh, and this morning we'll be reading from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. And let me remind you, this is God's word written. The same word that spoke the universe into existence is the word that speaks to us here today. So may the Spirit attend the reading and the preaching of God's word. So here it is now from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. And could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made its nest in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. As far God's word, if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the gift of your word. And Father, as we come now, Father, would you enable our ears and our hearts to hear it, that we might be transformed, that we might glimpse your glory and be gripped by your grace. We pray these things now in your son's name. Amen. So when I was with MTW in Bulgaria, I helped to lead a ESL ministry, which is English as a Second Language Ministry, where we taught conversational English to Bulgarian students. And one day, our topic for class was American holidays. And my student that day was a guy named Mitko. So we walked through the biggies, Christmas, Easter, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Labor Day, and as we came to Thanksgiving, I was getting ready for the turkey and the, the, the cylindrical or uh, cranberry sauce that we all love. Uh, but what he really wanted to know about was not Thanksgiving. It was Black Friday. And not the stock market. No, he wanted to know about the Friday after Thanksgiving sale. Because the whole concept of Black Friday was just rather odd to him. And I couldn't really disagree with him there. It is kind of odd. Because on one hand, it's literally one of the only days out of the year where Americans will willingly sacrifice their own comforts, forsaking the warmth of their own homes, their beds, their PJs. And they're willing to camp out in cold parking lots, risking frostbite and hypothermia, while standing in never-ending lines for the mere chance 
of getting that amazing deal. Like, did you know that since 2006, there have been more injuries and deaths related to Black Friday shopping than to shark attacks? And here's the deal. You can come home from the dangers of Black Friday shopping with all of your well-thought bounty and gifts and shopping bags. And the humorous thing is that for the most part, that you can hop on the internet and discover the exact same deals from the comfort of your own home and your own PJs, drinking your own coffee. See, the problem with Black Friday shopping is that for the most part, the deals aren't nearly as big as we really hoped that they would be. Well, one of Satan's greatest tricks is to get us to think that the gospel, that the kingdom of God is kind of like Black Friday shopping. That it's a lot of hard work, that it's a lot of standing out in the cold for a kingdom, for a gospel that's not nearly as big as you really thought that it was going to be. That's why as the sorrows, the trials, and the difficulties emerge from out of the murky waters of our lives, we, like the infamous Chief Brody, can begin to wonder if we're going to need a bigger boat. Like, is God really going to be big enough for cancer, for addiction, for infertility, for physical pain and sickness that just seems to never, ever, ever, ever want to go away? Is he really big enough for my loneliness, for my anxiety, for my depression, for my pain, for all that I've lost? A spouse, a child, a job, a career, or a dream. Like, is who he is really going to be big enough for you to face even the darkest and loneliest nights of your life? Brothers and sisters, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And what we find here in this passage, in Luke chapter 13, is Jesus gently whispering into our hearts, into our heart of hearts, saying, yes. Yes, I am. And no, you won't need a bigger boat. Because the truth is, I'm actually way bigger, way better, way more beautiful than you think I am. And our passage shows us this in three ways. That Jesus' kingdom restores the broken. That Jesus' kingdom endures rejection. And Jesus' kingdom is unstoppable. Well, first point is Jesus' kingdom restores the broken. Well, our story begins with Jesus teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And that's when Luke alerts us that amongst the crowd there that morning was a woman. And not just any woman, but a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. 18 years. That's nearly two decades. That's well over 6,000 days. That for 18 years, this disabling spirit, and from what Jesus tells us later in this story, this is no crick in her neck. This is not stenosis. This is not a pinched nerve. This is not a slipped disc. But that her suffering was in a similar fashion to Job, and that it was from Satan. And this disabling spirit had left her body bent and twisted and hunched over on itself. Now perhaps some of you live with chronic pain, 
or maybe back and spinal pain, and you know firsthand that incessant pain likely marked every moment of every day of her life, making her all but a slave to her own body. A body that for 18 years kept her bent over towards the ground, perhaps making her better acquainted with the feet of her family and friends rather than their faces and smiles. This is a broken woman, a woman who knew pain, who knew heartache and sorrow and life-shattering disappointment. How many nights, for how many years, has she cried out to God for deliverance, for rescue, for help, only to hear the reverberating silence? Why go into all these hypotheticals about this woman? Well, notice with me here this word, behold, in verse 11. Because Luke is not just interested in merely giving you the facts of this woman's story. No, Luke wants us to see this woman, to behold her, to enter into her story, her suffering. Because as verse 12 tells us, that's exactly what Jesus does. He sees her, despite the crowd, Despite the fact that he's busy teaching, despite that his adversaries are lurking throughout the room, Jesus sees her. And think about this. Not only is she a woman, but she's a woman who possesses a severe physical deformity, which in that cultural moment, as one commentator has put it, people with physical deformities were expected to remain socially invisible, especially if they were women. So after 18 years, this woman likely knew very well her place in that world and how to move in and out of crowds almost invisibly and imperceptibly. So in all likelihood, not only is she in the very back of this rather large crowd, her deformity has her hunched over so that she likely only rose up to the elbows or waists of the people standing in front of her. Here's the point. We don't just serve a God of happenstance, a God who's just in the right place at the right time. No, the only reason why Jesus sees this woman is because he knows she's there and he's looking for her because Jesus sees her. His eyes lock in on her that through the robes, through the beards, through the hair and the elbows, he sees her because he sees even the most invisible woman. And if he sees her, can I suggest to you here this morning that he sees you too? Your boss might not see you. A potential employer might not notice you. Your spouse might not see you. Your kids, your parents, your teachers, your pastors, your youth pastor, your friends, your peers, they may all overlook you. Looking past you to someone who is proverbially better. But can I just say that underneath all of the masks, all the fronts that so many of us wear, Jesus sees you. And in seeing you, what does he do? Well, what does he do with this woman? Well, through the crowd, he sees her and he calls her to come closer. Remember, due to her disability, she's an outcast. Like when people see her on the street, they crossed the road. They made like a chicken and crossed the road. They avoided her. 
And she has likely become very used to seeing the feet of others walk quickly away from her presence. Yet as she shuffles her way towards Jesus, what are his, what are his feet doing? They're staring straight back at her. She hears him beckoning her ever closer. And as she draws close, she hears him speak. Not to the crowd, but specifically and particularly to her. Woman, you are free from your disability. And she feels the gentle touch of Jesus. And in that moment, life, as she had known it for 18 years, changes in an instant. And the chains of her slavery are broken and her twisted and her crooked spine miraculously made straight. And free from the bonds of her brokenness, her gaze goes from the feet of Jesus to looking full into his wonderful face. And you know that for her, the things of this world grew strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace because she begins to worship You see, her response to the miracle of her physical restoration was the worship and the glory of God. In the Gospel of Luke, it's always interesting to see the people who proclaim the glories of God because they're never who you would expect. Like, it's never the religious folk. It's never the religious professionals. No, it's only ever the people at the margins. It's the poor the broken and the needy. It's the Gentiles. It's the people that no one else sees. Yet it's them, it's the marginalized who are joining with the angels to proclaim the glories of our God in the highest. So what's the application? Why is it such good news that the kingdom of God is a kingdom that restores the broken? Because brothers and sisters, The broken is us. And you know, the shackles of Satan don't always have physical manifestations. Sure, physically you may be walking around, standing up to your full height. But spiritually speaking, self-centeredness, addictions, Satan's lies and deceits have us all bent and twisted over on ourselves. Because that's what sin does. It wrenches our eyes towards the dirt rather than the heavens. Scripture says, For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So apart from Christ, we are not only slaves to our sin, but dead in our sin and in dire need of rescue. So then it is really good news that in our dire need, that in my dire need, in your dire need, that in our messiness and brokenness, that Jesus sees you spiritually hunched over and broken and staring into the dirt. And he doesn't cross the road. He doesn't run away at the sight of you, but he actually calls you to draw near to him, to look to him in faith, to be united to him. Because in being united to him, not only are our sins forgiven, but we are declared righteous in our heavenly Father's sight, adopted into the family of families, where we become the sons and the daughters of God. And a daughter is exactly who this woman becomes. Have a look down at verse 13. Jesus refers to her not just as a woman, 
but as a daughter of Abraham. A daughter of God's covenant promise. A title Jesus will once again use with another cultural outsider in the Gospel of Luke. A wee little man named Zacchaeus. A son of Abraham. Here's the point. Jesus not only sees this woman. He draws near to her. He speaks to her. He touches her. He restores her. He redeems her. And finally, he bestows upon her a new identity. She's not just a woman now. She's a daughter of Abraham. A daughter of a promised redemption soon to be realized in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our second point, a kingdom that endures rejection and resistance. Well, the second thing that gives us confidence that the kingdom of God is way bigger and way better than we think it is, is that we see it endure despite encountering rejection and resistance. Rejection and resistance are just part and parcel of life in a broken world. That's why resilience is such an admired quality in our world. That's why we in SEC football country make such a big deal about strength of schedule. Because it doesn't matter if southwestern Michigan State is undefeated if they never actually played a team that's any good. And as followers of Jesus, not only do we encounter the resistance and the rejection of life in a fallen world, but Jesus' call to discipleship will place you in growing tension, growing hostility, or just growing awkwardness with the world around us. And we are seeing that more and more in our culture. But that's why Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that in this world, that though we will have trouble, but behold, he has overcome the world. So this reality of rejection and resistance is nothing new. It's nothing out of the ordinary to the Christian faith. And we see that in our passage. This that the tension is ever growing between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. People who knew a lot about God. People who knew and likely could recite great swaths of the Old Testament from memory. Yet Jesus posed a great threat to their spiritual empire and control and power. So here we have this religious ruler watching on as Jesus heals this woman. And notice the cold and the calloused way that he responds. There's no joy. There's no wonder. There's no excitement. There's no worship in him. Only indignation and outrage. Remember, this is a woman from his own community. He likely knows her by name. He knows her situation, her story. And yet after 18 years of her pain suffering and tears, all he really seems to want to do is to throw a flag on Jesus, to blow the whistle on Jesus. Once again, Jesus is healing someone on the Sabbath day. And rather than rejoice, the Pharisees and the Sadducees attack. You see, they've become so deluded about the Sabbath that they've actually diluted it to something that it's not. They've flooded the Sabbath with so many rules and regulations that the Sabbath they celebrate is hardly a Sabbath at all. It's more about checking boxes of doing this or avoiding that rather than about worshiping and glorifying the living and the true God. That in their attempts to follow the letter of the law, 
they've actually missed the fact that the God who authored that law is standing smack dab in front of them. So Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, exposes their hypocrisy. In verse 15, he calls them hypocrites because their rules don't make any sense. Remarking to them, how can they show mercy to a donkey on the Sabbath but not to a person? Like, what kind of backwards world are they living in? I mean, sure, a good donkey can be hard to come by. But no donkey was ever created and formed in the image of God. And what Jesus exposes in them is that they valued rules more than they valued people. Verse 17 tells us that as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are doing everything they can to stop Jesus. To thwart the kingdom of God. Yet they can't stop him. Notice there's an important word repeated three times in this verse, in verse 17. And it's the word all. And Luke includes that word to show us that nothing and no one can stop or prevent Jesus from accomplishing all that he came to do. That no resistance, no rejection can stop the kingdom of God from coming. Which is really good news for those who have experienced rejection in the name of Jesus. Perhaps you have family members and friends who when you became a believer, the dynamics of your relationship changed. That try as you might to love them, care for them, and share the gospel with them. Things just aren't the same anymore. And now more than ever, we, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted, marginalized, imprisoned, kicked out of their families, hunted down and killed by their own communities because of their faith in Christ. Yet despite all of this rejection and resistance, the kingdom of God will not be thwarted, for it cannot be contained, because greater than our opposition is our God. Which leads us to our third point. Jesus' kingdom is unstoppable. We're not going to need a bigger boat. That's Jesus' whole point with these two short little parables. We don't need a bigger boat because the kingdom of God is way bigger and way better than we think it is. The first parable is that the kingdom is like a mustard seed that goes from seed to plant to bush and eventually becomes a tree so big that the birds of the air can build a nest in it. The point being that while the kingdom may start small and grow really, really, really slowly, but soon that seed will be a tree. And the nations, those who are far off, will flock to this tree and make their home in it. And whenever I read and think about this parable, the parable of the mustard seed, I think of a tree at my parents' house that our neighbor planted in 1996. And if you were around in Atlanta in 1996, it was the year of the Olympics. And that tree became my hurdle, my high bar. And for years following the planting of that tree, as a little guy, I would leap over that tree because that was my path to gold. And I won many gold medals in my mind those years. Uh, so as I grew up, for many years, I could still manage to leap over that little tree. That is until I came back from college. 
then a few years later, came back from the mission field, and now I go to my parents' house like I did the other day, and that little tree that I used to easily hurdle is now over 20 feet tall, and I couldn't clear that thing if I wanted to, and that's the point. The growth of the kingdom of God in this world may at times seem to be moving and growing really, really slowly. So slowly that the kingdoms of this world seem to easily hurl over it. Yet despite appearances, the kingdom of God continues to grow bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. Now the second parable is the parable of leaven. And three measures of flour is no small amount of flour would have likely been able to feed over a hundred people. So this is not baking cookies in your kitchen, but this is a serious baking operation. And the point is just a little bit of leaven is enough to leaven the whole lot. Leaven by its very nature gets everywhere. And the kingdom of God works in the same way. And up until now, we've been talking about the kingdom, about the kingdom of God and its growth in the world. But let's talk about the kingdom of God and its growth in our hearts. Because the gospel doesn't just transform the world. It transforms us. And then uses crooked sticks like us as his instruments of redemption. But none of us have arrived. We are all in process. We all need to grow in grace, in faith, in putting off the old self, in putting on the new self in Christ. And I would say most days, what discourages us the most in the Christian walk is ourselves and the glacial pace at which we grow. Our own lack of faith astounds us. Our failures to trust and hope in the Lord confound us. And hope in those moments is the hope that the kingdom of God is not just at work in this world, but is also at work in our own lives and hearts. And that it won't stop its work until it leavens every square inch. And like leaven, it will often work quietly. And imperceptively, yet the kingdom of God is moving inevitably and transformationally in our hearts and lives. Because that's how God transforms us. Bit by bit, day by day, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So what's the application? Hope in our hopelessness. The Puritan Richard Sibb says that because of God's wondrous promises, we can be a people who see a flame and a spark, a tree and a seed. We see great things in little beginnings. That we as Christians, as citizens of a greater kingdom and a greater family, are to be people of hope, of living hope, because the source of our hope is Jesus. And Jesus was born, and he lived, and he died, and he rose, and he ascended. And where he is now is seated at his Father's right hand. And all that he came to do, he has accomplished for us, his people. So in conclusion, we began by asking, is the kingdom of God, is Jesus really going to be big enough to face the darkest moments of your life? Or will we need a bigger boat? Like to stare into the vortex of those moments 
We need something more than a superficial faith filled with platitudes and plastic smiles. No, we need something, or really someone that sees us, that knows us, that draws near to us, and who is willing to burrow down deep within our guts to give our souls hope when all seems hopeless, to whisper into the deafening silence of our loneliness and fear, to be our rock of salvation when the trap door of life springs open. And that someone is Jesus. And he who has come is coming again. And as he does so, he will make all things new. But until that day, amidst our sorrows, amidst our suffering, those darkest nights of our lives, our Savior gives us his spirit a spirit who is whispering to our whimpering souls that we are children of God. That no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck you from my hand till I return or I call you home here, here, here. In my power, you can stand. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you and we praise you for the gift of your word. That you are a God who sees and who knows even us. That the great God of the universe would be pleased to dwell with us. So Father, we praise you for the glimpse of your glory and the grip of your grace that we've seen here in this passage. Would you use it to form us and transform us more and more like Jesus. Pray this now in your son's name. Amen. Well, let's sing now in response to that. In Christ alone, please stand. Mm -hmm.